This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What I Saw in America by G. K. Chesterton Section 4 Chapter 2 A Meditation in a New York Hotel Part 2 I think I know my American friends and acquaintances too well to apologize for any levity in these illustrations. Americans make fun of their own institutions, and their own journalism is full of such fanciful conjectures. The tall building is itself artistically akin to the tall story. The very word skyscraper is an admirable example of an American lie. But I can testify quite as eagerly to the solid and sensible advantages of the symmetrical hotel. It is not only a pattern of vases and stuffed flamingos. It is also an equally accurate pattern of cupboards and baths. It is a dignified and humane custom to have a bathroom attached to every bedroom, and my impulse to sing the praises of it brought me once at least into a rather quaint complication. I think it was in the city of Dayton. Anyhow, I remember there was a laundry convention going on in the same hotel, in a room very patriotically and properly festooned with the stars and stripes, and doubtless full of promise for the future of laundering. I was interviewed on the roof within earshot of this debate, and may have been the victim of some association or confusion. Anyhow, after answering the usual questions about labor, the League of Nations, the length of ladies' dresses, and other great matters, I took refuge in a rhapsody of warm and well-deserved praise of American bathrooms. The editor, I understand, running a gloomy eye down the column in his contributor's story, and seeing nothing but metaphysical terms such as justice, freedom, the abstract disapproval of sweating, swindling, and the like, paused at last upon the ablutionary illusion, and his eye brightened. That's the only copy in the whole thing, he said, a bathtub in every home. So these words appeared in enormous letters above my portrait in the paper. It will be noted that, like many things that practical men make a great point of, they miss the point. What I had commended as new and national was a bathroom in every bedroom. Even feudal and moss-grown England is not entirely ignorant of an occasional bathtub in the home. But what gave me great joy was what followed. I discovered with delight that many people, glancing rapidly at my portrait with its prodigious legend, imagined that it was a commercial advertisement, and that I was a very self-advertising commercial traveller. When I walked about the streets I was supposed to be travelling in bathtubs. Consider the caption of the portrait, and you will see how similar it is to true commercial slogan. We offer a bathtub in every home and this charming error was doubtless clinched by the fact that I had been found haunting the outer courts of the temple of the ancient guild of lavenders. I never knew how many shared the impression. I regret to say that I only traced it with certainty in two individuals, but I understand that it included the idea that I had come to the town to attend the laundry convention, and had made an eloquent speech to that senate, no doubt exhibiting my tubs. Such was the penalty of too passionate and unrestrained an admiration for American bathrooms. Yet the connection of ideas, however inconsequent, 
does cover the part of social practice for which these American institutions can really be praised. About everything, like laundry or hot or cold water, there is not only organization, but what does not always or perhaps often go with it, efficiency. Americans are particular about these things of dress and decorum, and it is a virtue which I very seriously recognize, though I find it very hard to emulate. But with them it is a virtue. It is not a mere convention, still less a mere fashion. It is really related to human dignity rather than to social superiority. The really glorious thing about the American is that he does not dress like a gentleman. He dresses like a citizen, or a civilized man. His puritanic particularity, on certain points, is really detachable from any definite social ambitions. These things are not a part of getting into society, but merely of keeping out of savagery. Those millions and millions of middling people, that huge middle class, especially of the Middle West, are not near enough to any aristocracy, even to be sham aristocrats, or to be real snobs. But their standards are secure, and though I do not really travel in a bathtub, or believe in the bathtub philosophy and religion, I will not on this matter recoil misanthropically from them. I prefer the tub of Dayton to the tub of Diogenes. On these points there is really something a million times better than efficiency, and that is something like equality. In short, the American hotel is not America, but it is American. In some respects it is as American as the English inn is English, and it is symbolic of that society, and this among other things, that it does tend too much to uniformity. But that, that very uniformity, disguises not a little natural dignity. The old Romans boasted that their republic was a nation of kings. If we really walked abroad in such a kingdom, we might very well grow tired of the sight of a crowd of kings, of every man with a gold crown on his head, or an ivory sceptre in his hand. But it is arguable that we ought not to grow tired of the repetition of crowns and sceptres, any more than of the repetition of flowers and stars. The whole imaginative effort of Walt Whitman was really an effort to absorb and animate these multitudinous modern repetitions, and Walt Whitman would be quite capable of including in his lyric litany of optimism a list of the 999 identical bathrooms. I do not sneer at the generous effort of the giant, though I think, when all is said, that it is a criticism of modern machinery that the effort should be gigantic as well as generous. While there is so much repetition, there is little repose. It is the pattern of a kaleidoscope rather than a wallpaper, a pattern of figures running and even leaping like the figures in a zeotrope. But even in the groups where there was no hustle, there was often something of homelessness. I do not mean merely that they were not dining at home, but rather that they were not at home even when dining, and dining at their favorite hotel. They would frequently start up and dart from the room at a summons from the telephone. It may have been fanciful, but I could not help feeling a breath of home, as from a flap or flutter of St. George's Cross, when I first sat down in a Canadian hotelry and read the announcement that no such telephonic or other summonses were allowed in the dining room. It may have been a coincidence, 
and there may be American hotels with this merciful proviso, and Canadian hotels without it. But the thing was symbolic, even if it was not evidential. I felt as if I stood indeed upon English soil in a place where people liked to have their meals in peace. The process of the summons is called paging, and consists of sending a little boy with a large voice through all the halls and corridors of the building, making them resound with a name. The custom is common, of course, in clubs and hotels, even in England, but in England it is a mere whisper compared with the wail with which the American page repeats the formula of calling Mr. So-and-so. I remember a particularly crowded partier in the somewhat smoky and oppressive atmosphere of Pittsburgh, through which wandered a youth with a voice the like of which I have never heard in the land of the living, a voice like the cry of a lost spirit saying again and again forever, Carling Mr. Anderson! One felt that he never would find Mr. Anderson. Perhaps there never had been any Mr. Anderson to be found. Perhaps he and everyone else wandered in abyss of bottomless skepticism, and he was but the victim of one out of numberless nightmares of eternity, as he wandered a shadow with shadows, and wailed by impassable streams. This is not exactly my philosophy, but I feel sure it was his, and it is a mood that may frequently visit the mind in the centers of highly active and successful industrial civilization. Such are the first idle impressions of the great American hotel, gained by sitting for the first time in its gallery and gazing on its drifting crowds with thoughts equally drifting. The first impression is of something enormous and rather unnatural, an impression that is gradually tempered by experience of the kindliness and even the tameness of so much of that social order. But I should not be recording the sensations with sincerity, if I did not touch in passing the note of something unearthly about that vast system to an insular traveller who sees it for the first time. It is as if he were wandering in another world among the fixed stars, or were still in an ideal utopia of the future. Yet I am not certain, and perhaps the best of all news is, that nothing is really new. I sometimes really have a fancy that many of these new things, in new countries, are but the resurrections of old things which have been wickedly killed or stupidly stunted in old countries. I have looked over the sea of little tables in some light and airy open-air café, and my thoughts have gone back to the plain wooden bench and wooden table that stands solitary and weather-stained outside so many neglected English inns. We talk of experimenting in the French café as of some fresh and almost impudent innovation, but our fathers had the French café, in the sense of the free and easy table in the sun and air. The only difference was that the French democracy was allowed to develop its café, or multiply its tables, while English plutocracy prevented any such popular growth. Perhaps there are other examples of old types and patterns lost in the old oligarchy and saved in the new democracies. I am haunted with a hint that the new structures are not so very new, and that they remind me of something very old. As I look from the balcony floor, the crowd seem to float away, and the colors to soften and grow pale, and I know I am in one of the simplest and most ancestral of human habitations. I am looking down from the old wooden gallery upon the courtyard of an inn. This new architectural model which I have described is, after all, 
one of the oldest European models, now neglected in Europe and especially in England. It was the theatre in which were enacted innumerable picaresque comedies and romantic plays, with figures ranging from Sancho Panza to Sam Weller. It served as the apparatus, like some gigantic toys set up in bricks and timber, for the ancient and perhaps eternal game of tennis. The very terms of the original game were taken from the inn courtyard, and the players scored accordingly as they hit the buttery hatch or the roof. Singular speculations, however, in my mind, as the scene darkens and the quadrangle below begins to empty in the last hours of night. Some day, perhaps, this huge structure will be found standing in solitude like a skeleton, and it will be the skeleton of the spotted dog or the blue boar. It will wither and decay until it is worthy at last to be a tavern. I do not know whether men will play tennis on its ground floor, with various scores and prizes for hitting the electric fan, or the lift, or the head waiter. Perhaps the very words will only remain as part of some such rustic game. Perhaps the electric fan will no longer be electric, and the elevator will no longer elevate, and the waiter will only wait to be hit. But at least it is only by the decay of modern plutocracy, which seems already to have begun, that the secret of the structure, even of this plutocratic place, can stand revealed. And after long years, when its lights are extinguished, and only the long shadows inhabit its halls and vestibules, there may come a new noise like thunder of D'Artagnan knocking at the door. The End of Section 4 the end of chapter 2